My wife, Catherine, loves singing. Uh, my eldest daughter, Lizzie, also loves singing. My son, Samuel, however, has a bit of a problem with singing. And I have to say that this can lead to some family tensions on long car journeys. So uh, Lizzie, for example, may spontaneously start singing. No singing! shouts Samuel. And I have to admit that when she's singing Abba, uh, my instinct is to take his side in this little conflict. You see, one of the reasons why I struggle to sing sometimes is finding something worth singing about. But listen to this. You tell me whether you think this is worth singing about. Knowing me, knowing you. In brackets. Aha. <laughs> we just have to face it. This time we're through. This time we're through. This time we're through. This time we're through. We're really through. Breaking up is never easy, I know. But I have to go. I have to go this time. I have to go this time. I know. So I think I'm with Sam on this one. When it comes to Abba, no singing. But another thing that may be keeping us back or holding us back from singing is a lack of a a kind of a proper encouragement to sing or an opportunity to sing in a way that's going to be truly honouring to God. Uh, Take an extreme example of this. Uh, So just before my ordination into the Church of England, I was was sent on what they call a retreat. And someone somewhere in their wisdom decided that this should be a silent retreat. And there we had a a positive discouragement. Uh, No opportunity to make any sound at all, let alone to sing. And I have to say, it was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever been through. Uh, This was back in 2004, and uh, things reached the peak of absurdity when we were graciously permitted to watch England play football in the European Cup's finals. (laughs) But yes, only with the sound turned down and in silence. Um, Now, I'm probably the least sporty person in the world, uh, but when you watch football in a group, surely that is the time when it's least possible, even for people like me, to hold back from making a noise, you know, from groaning out loud, especially if it's England playing, for shouting for joy. Perhaps when we really get into it, we might even do some singing. But there we were, doing the whole thing in mime. Okay then, so then, two things that might hold us back from singing. The lack of something worth singing about and the lack of a proper encouragement or opportunity. The lack of some singing to join in with. Now what I'm going to say to you this evening is that what we need is Psalm 98. Because here we have a psalm which addresses precisely those two issues. It gives us something really worth singing about. We sing because of the Lord's mighty righteous acts, both experienced in the past and promised for the future. Psalm 98 also gives us a song to join in with. I'm going to call this a missionary song through which we call each other to sing and even call the whole earth to join in. And those two things, something worth singing about 
And a way to sing it to give us two headings to work under this evening. So first then, from verses 1 to 3 and verse 9, we're going to look at what it, what it is that we have as Christians that really is worth singing about. That we should sing because of the marvellous things the Lord is bringing about. In fact, one of the things I hope we're going to see here is that in this psalm, there are indeed two big reasons to sing. The second of them building on the first. Sing because the Lord has done marvellous things. But because he has done marvellous things, we can also sing with confidence that he will do even more marvellous things. Let's begin then with the things the Lord has done. Uh, Read with me from verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The Lord's has done marvellous things. But what exactly? Well, when this psalm was written, uh, the word behind that little phrase, marvellous things, would have instantly lit up in the brains of those hearing it. The little box marked Exodus. In other words, as in that Psalm 97, which we were looking at last week, these verses should cast us back to the biblical account of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. So take this from Exodus chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the marvellous things, same phrase, with all the marvellous things I will perform among them. And that, I think, does help us to explain these uh, verses, explain and understand these verses. Just work through the, the three verses again with me. It was at the Exodus, verse 1, that the Lord worked a great salvation. It was what we might call a restorative salvation. It corrected something deeply wrong, and it restored something right. What was wrong? Well, the the nations and uh, Egypt itself did not know the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? said Pharaoh. I don't know the Lord. And he expressed this by ruthlessly oppressing the Lord's people. So, verse 2 here, the Lord made himself known through his salvation, his great salvation. He heard the groaning of his people. And verse 3, remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And over and over again in the history of the Exodus, the Lord explains that he is acting, he's doing all these things so that the Egyptians will know, so that Pharaoh will know that he is the Lord. And the earth is his. He does it, Exodus chapter 9, 16, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So see that here in Psalm 98. Verse 2, he's revealed his righteousness, his restorative salvation to the nations. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, remembering all these things was built into the life of the nation. It it pretty much shaped them as a nation. Um, I guess most of all in the annual Passover celebration. And we can remember, we can imagine uh, grumpy teenagers 
two and a half thousand years ago, because I'm sure there were grumpy teenagers two and a half thousand years ago, asking their parents, why do we have to do all this stupid stuff? And it was actually written into the law of Moses that fathers should stop at that point and explain exactly why they were doing all this stuff. And as here in verse 1, those fathers would tell again of the great salvation worked by the Lord for his people, delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians with great and fearful power. Now in our country in 2010... Uh, We've been remembering remembering the uh, Battle of Britain recently, you may have noticed uh, in the news and and so forth. So back in August, a spitfire and a hurricane flew across the London skyline. That was there to mark the 70th anniversary of one of Winston Churchill's great Battle of Britain speeches. And I suppose we might say that that piece of history uh, has in some ways shaped us as a nation. It shapes what it means to be British, and, and certainly did for for a few generations. Well, even more so for Israel, remembering this great piece of history, remembering the Exodus. And we need to feel with them what a deeply emotive thing that was to remember. Now, we can empathise with that a little, I think. Um, as we look back to the Second World War, for example, we can, we can feel some of the horror and the heartache that people went through at that time. But we should also be able to feel how good it was how good it was that something so transparently evil as Nazism was stopped, even if it had to be stopped by violent means. Likewise with the Exodus, but again, even more so. The Egyptians were at the point of slaughtering the Israelites, but the Lord swept them away. In Exodus chapter 15, it it brings Moses to burst out in song, And uh, we can imagine Moses um, collapsing to his knees with weeping uh, and relief, crying out with words that in Exodus 15 are very close to the ones here in Psalm 98. He begins, I will sing to the Lord. And he goes on later, Your right hand was majestic in power. The nations will hear and tremble. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone. And Miriam joins in, singing to the whole people, calling them to join in too. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Sing, because the Lord has done marvellous things. But because he has done marvellous things, we can also sing with confidence that the Lord will do marvellous things. Let's take a look at verse 1 again. This is, a, this is a new song. In other words, the psalmist is, is not just repeating what Moses and Miriam sang. He seems to be doing something else. He seems to be looking back to that event, yes, but also looking forward to a great salvation, which for him lies in the future. And why those great Exodus acts were seen by the nations all around uh, Egypt at the time, uh, we saw that in verse 2, The the hope here seems to be much bigger, doesn't it? The psalmist is looking for a mighty act of salvation to be seen by the whole earth, as here in verse 3. And if you think that expectation for the future is only hinted at, uh, perhaps in those first three verses, it is, in fact, made quite explicit 
at the end of the psalm in verse 9. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will, he will come to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord will do marvellous things. He will act in righteousness to save and judge, correcting what is wrong and restoring what is right. But actually, as Christians approaching this psalm, we can add a third reason to burst out in song. You see, the Lord has already begun these marvellous things. As Christians seeing this psalm will know that the great act of salvation it looks forward to has already begun in Jesus Christ. It's a salvation that uh, the Lord is not just working before the nations as a demonstration to them. He's calling them to join in. It is a great, the great salvation for the whole world. We might even say that the judgment of the world has in some sense already begun as people are lined up either for Jesus or against him. So put all those things together and we have much to sing about. Sing, because the Lord has done marvellous things, the Lord will do marvellous things, and finally in Jesus those marvellous things have already begun. On paper that's three things very much worth singing about. But I'm still wondering how that makes you feel. You see, this is a psalm that's encouraging us to sing and shout for joy about things that we don't sort of normally or naturally, especially in our culture, sing and shout for joy for. It's asking us to sing and shout for joy for justice and judgment. About salvation too, that's true. But the final emphasis here, verse 9, is on singing about the coming judgment of the world. And we have to face up to the fact that we find that an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Just think about all the Christian songs that you know and ask yourself, in how many of them are we joyfully celebrating the coming righteous judgment of God? Now, it's not that we can't think of situations where we might sing or shout with joy the execution of judgment. Take football again, for example. Uh, Our team is just about to score. There's an outrageous foul or a handball, say. And uh, so long as we're not on a silent retreat, uh, we applaud when a red card is shown and a penalty given. And when the shot goes in, what do we do? Well, we may well shout for joy. Uh, We might then well move on to some jubilant singing. Singing with joy at a wrong corrected and something right restored. And yet, when it comes to things that really matter, somehow it's much harder, isn't it? Somehow we go all cold and limp. Somehow we've swallowed the lie that it's inappropriate to feel moral outrage or to be joyful about justice. Somehow we've become numb and uh, slightly indifferent to the injustice around us, just as our culture has. Somehow, we need to recover the way Moses felt when he burst out in song in Exodus 15. Now, some things I think we can correct relatively easily. You see, in some ways, it's not 
too hard to recover Moses' sense of outrage at the oppression of his people, at the persecution of his people. You just have to sign up to the, the Barnabas Trust newsletter and you'll find that very similar things are happening today and indeed on a much wider scale. I'll give you many examples here, but just listen to this one. A couple of years ago, a young Saudi woman named uh, Faithma al-Mutari learned about, Egypt, uh, learned about Jesus on the internet and very amazingly decided to follow him. But when her family noticed the cross on her computer screensaver and discovered that she had converted from Islam to Christianity, they cut out her tongue and they burned her to death. Feeling outraged at things like that is, is not difficult. What we perhaps need to work, work much harder at is Moses' sense of deep outrage that the Lord is not held in the esteem he deserves. And that's something we don't need to travel to Saudi Arabia to encounter. It's something all around us, isn't it? We live in a culture with such a dismissive and arrogant and patronising, mocking attitude to God. It rather makes Pharaoh look quite respectful. No, it's not that any of us are innocent in this respect. Perhaps that's um, what's holding us back and recognising it in others and feeling the outrage. But so long as, so long as I recognise just how much my own dismissive attitude to God is deserving of judgement, and that it's only by his mercy that I can be saved from that, well, then I can begin to feel rightly about others doing the same. So, so it's true that the outrage that we should feel about these things, it should never be a kind of daily mail, you know, finger-wagging sort of outrage. Nevertheless, when the Lord is dismissed or insulted, as he is all the time around us, it should make our cheeks and ears burn. It should wrench our stomachs, keeping us awake at night. I sincerely believe that if we could recover even a fraction of the outrage we should feel, then it would make all the difference here. And then, when we hear the Lord coming to correct that and restore what is right, to restore his name, I think we'd have trouble stopping ourselves from bursting out into song. But what sort of singing are we talking about here? What I'm going to suggest here is missionary singing. Our second and final main heading this evening from verses 4 to 8. Missionary singing, which draws, which draws in all the earth. Now you can see the basic idea in verse 4. So verse 4, uh, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, burst into jubilant song with music. The Lord has done and will do marvellous things, working a great salvation. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. In Jesus, all these things are all, have already begun. So this is our aim. To encourage all the earth to shout for joy. All the earth to make music and to sing. But what I especially want to show you in these verses as we finish this evening is, is how all this making music and singing and shouting builds up from a, from a relatively small and intimate setting to something increasingly bigger and bolder. 
So that what we get from uh, verse 5 to the end of the psalm are what we might call concentric circles of praise, like ripples from a stone dropped in a pond, starting small, but getting progressively bigger, until this wonderful noise fills the whole earth, and even the mountains are joining in. So we begin with a relatively small and intimate, this is verse 5. Make music to the Lord with the harp, says the psalmist with the harp and the sound of singing. Well, not a harp, perhaps, some sort of stringed instrument, anyway, something like a zither, perhaps. But anyway, strings and voice. Uh, Melody and music and content. That was certainly uh, King David's vision for music, that this is David's favourite instrument, uh, you may know, uh, the one he encouraged his own musicians to play with as, as they engaged in, quotes the ministry of prophesying. So there you have it again. Melody and content. Music and prophesying. Now why is that such a potent combination? Well, I think, it, I think what happens is that the, the music and the melody takes the content and mixes it into us. Uh, I guess it's a bit like taking the essential, and some essential ingredient when you're, when you're cooking and mixing it in throughout all the other ingredients. So what we do, we take relatively abstract truths, such as the restorative salvation of the Lord we've just been talking about, and uh, the music helps to mix it in to the other parts of our personality, to our uh, emotions, to our affections, and the result should be fully mixed in, filled with joy. Indeed, that seems to be the, the way that God has made us. I don't know a huge amount about this, or apparently music engages the parts of the brain which are much better at emotions and empathy and relationships. The music helps to bring all those things in line with the great truths that we're proclaiming. Uh, but not only does the music mix the truth into all our personalities when we sing, when we sing and make music as a congregation, it mixes it in as a community. It does that as well. In other words, making music to the Lord is one of the means he uses to unite us to him. All that we are as individuals and all that we are as a community. So we might say as an aside here that if music ever divides us, as sadly it does, I think we can safely say that something has gone badly wrong. It's not that our personal preferences in music are unimportant, but as in many other things in the Christian life, we put those to one side for the sake of others. Whether we stick with instruments actually mentioned in the Bible, uh, like the cymbals, for example, or whether we graciously allow one of these new-fangled, noisy organ things, we do whatever it is that's going to help people to join in. Okay then, so we're moving out now. From the melodious and the intimate, we're moving from in verse 6 to something much bigger and bolder. Now we're talking about something not just meant to be heard by a few, but to be heard by everyone. Verse 6, with trumpets and the blasts of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. In other words, you might say that we've moved from the, from the string ensemble uh, to the football stadium or perhaps even to the, to the battlefield. This is a shout of great victory. 
the sort of thing that might announce the end of a battle. It heralded the arrival of a victorious king. Uh, In this case, you can see the Lord God himself. Christians singing this psalm will recognize this as, as, as the shout of great victory which heralds the arrival of the Lord Jesus to save and to judge. Verse 6 describes the proclamation of that victory to the world. The missionary singing, the missionary shout, which all Christians are involved in. In word, and also with this shout of joy, we declare the marvellous things he's doing even now to the world around us. And look at the picture here of what happens next. This shout is so loud, and the news is so great, that it brings the whole earth to join in. Verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The earth has been groaning for justice ever since the blood of murdered Abel cried out from the ground is brought to shouts for joy as it hears news of the marvellous things the Lord is bringing about. The sea roars. I don't know if you've ever been near the sea when it's roaring, deafening, deafening sound. The rivers clap. I was near a waterfall in South America once, a huge one, and it was indeed something like thunderous applause. But we're talking about something... Greater than that, something out of the ordinary here, aren't we? Even the mountains are shouting for joy. What a rich and powerful, exciting, moving, wonderful, simply enormous noise these, vo- these verses describe. But not just a noise. It has layers to it, depth to it, delicate melody, as well as the thunderous roar. And content behind it all lies our proclamation of the marvellous things the Lord is bringing about. And I do hope it makes you want to join in. We're going to read this psalm together now. I'm sorry that we're not going to sing it, actually. If you have the uh, gifts to set this to some genuinely joyful music, then please do take that on as a a project. Uh, We we are going to be singing straight afterwards, however about some of the things related to what we've been talking about this evening. Now, as I said last week, uh, when we read a psalm together, it may be best not to join in if you don't yet agree to this psalm, if you can't sign up to what the psalmist is saying. In particular, if you can't yet face the idea of rejoicing because of the coming justice of the Lord, and I do understand that that's, that's a difficult thing, and it may be best to keep quiet as we say this, together. Just listen and reflect on that. But if if you do want to shout for joy about the marvellous things the Lord has done, the marvellous things he will do, and the marvellous things he has begun in Jesus, then please do join me. Ready? Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known 
and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen.